like to take a second and just to say thank you for your prayers for my family, for uh, mom and dad are doing well, and my sister, you know, they're just uh, getting up in age, and so that concerns us. Um, I do have a cousin, Chrissy Bentley, who uh, is actually in the hospital now with COVID, so I would appreciate your prayers for her. She has some other uh, issues that, uh, that could make that worse, so appreciate that. And also want to say thank you for <clears throat> making my family feel so welcome here. I know I'm not, uh, I didn't grow up here, I know a lot of the speakers have, and I'm honored to stand here uh, in the presence of where so many uh, great speakers have, have stood, and uh, I appreciate that, but uh, I've known all, a lot of you for a long time, and so I just thank you for making my family feel so welcome here. And we appreciate you and love you, and we're thankful for your faith in the Lord in the work that you do. I'd like to also point out, coming up this week is the uh, Progressive Gospel Meeting at some of the congregations, we'll just say west of here, um, out in our western counties. Uh, The theme, I believe this is uh, maybe the 21st or 22nd year uh, for this, and the theme is a concern for the church. Today, actually, at 2 o'clock, there is a singing at Fredericksburg from 2 to 3.30, and then you can see the following days there, Monday through Saturday. Uh, I... uh, I'll give you a money-back guarantee that you won't be uh, disappointed if you go. All right? Yes, I'll pay your gas money if you go and you're disappointed. No, I'm kidding. So I uh, invite you to that, 7 o'clock each night. Uh, the, <clears throat> the ministers who got together and, and chose that time know that this is just a, it's a difficult time of year. People are stuck inside quite a bit. Um, they want to get out and have some fellowship. And so it's been very well attended over the years. And just a good time of encouragement, uh, encouragement this time of the year in particular. And then, just so you know, Saturday night at Kansas, not the state of Kansas, Kansas Church of Christ out between Fredericksburg and Salem, they have a, uh, they have a um, fellowship center, and so there'll be a dessert pitch-in fellowship after that, as we do, uh, kind of floats back and forth between there and Martinsburg each year, so... Let me know if you have any questions, or if you need to know where some of these places are, certainly I can get you directions uh, to that. All right. Well, this morning, a lot of what uh, we will be talking about comes from this book, The Case for Historic Christianity, by Mr. Ed Wharton. He was a teacher at Sunset Bible, uh, Bible College or Bible Institute down in Lubbock, Texas, and I have that book here with me today. If you'd like to see it or maybe snap a photo of it uh, that you can order, you can, I believe you can get it on Amazon. And so uh, just a lot of uh, uh, excellent um, studies in this book. And this morning we're going to be uh, taking a few things from the, about the first three chapters and going, going over that. So we're we're here uh, certainly to encourage one another, and also as we are here and we worship together, our faith is built. And so our goal this morning certainly will be to strengthen our faith. And we say, well, how do you do that? Well, by the word of God. Scripture tells us in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 17, that faith comes by hearing the word of God. And so that's what, uh, that's what we are going to do today. Um, our faith in what? Our faith in the Lord. And so that brings us to the question then, well, what is faith? Well, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 gives us a great definition of just what is faith. And I put three different versions up there because each one, um, I believe, helps us to understand. Being sure of what we hope for, 
convinced of what we do not see. Confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see and the substance of things hoped for and evidence of things not seen. You know, we all want some evidence, right? We want to know. We want to know for sure that what we're doing is what God wants us to be doing. You know, typically I want to know for sure when I go out and turn that key in my car, I want to know for sure that thing's going to start. Well, you know, that can let me down sometimes. But how am I going to know that? That is going to start. Well, from the evidence. Yesterday I went out and it started. Hopefully today that's going to go out. I'm going to go out and that'll start. Well, this is something even more sure. We have assurance. We have confidence. And this is going to uh, hopefully help build our confidence this morning. And so we're going to look at some of the evidence from non-Christian writers, uh, both pagan and Jewish, and establish the historical reality of the existence of Jesus of Nazareth so that we don't doubt. I'm thankful for the reading uh, from Second Peter 1, 1 through 12. I know that was a lengthy reading, but appreciate that. If you notice, the word knowledge is in there quite a bit. And I firmly believe that knowledge is not the opposite of faith. Rather, knowledge and faith work together, and we are built up by that. And so, thankful for that. John chapter 20, verses uh, 27, 29, when Thomas encounters Jesus, he, he says, uh, Jesus says to Thomas, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe, which we are all in that category, correct? Yes, we are. But the Lord has not left us. He has never left anyone just in the dark. And so he doesn't leave us in the dark either. And when we think about the Bible and understanding it and knowing it, knowing it, you know, we put a lot of faith that that is what we need. And that is indeed the word of God. And we're going to look at some things that will help us Help build that faith and build that uh, confidence in the Word of God. So in continuing Hebrews chapter 11, what we just spoke about as far as being convinced of. What are we being convinced of? Well, Hebrews chapter 11 verse 2 tells us the universe was formed at God's command. So that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. It was made from the invisible or the visible has its origin in the invisible. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For the one who approaches God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Otherwise, what's the point, right? Why are we here? Why do we do what we do? So we must believe that certainly he will do what he has said he will do. So Christianity is far more than a philosophy. It is not merely an ethical system. Christianity is a redemptive system. Christianity is belief in Jesus, the real person of history and everything that he did, including redeeming us by dying on the cross and being resurrected from the dead, proving himself to be the son of God. And so any investigation into the genuineness of the claims of Christianity has to begin with an investigation of Jesus as a real person in history. Let's take a look at evidence from non-Christian writers, five early pagan writers that give proof that Jesus was a real or that there was a real Nazarene named Jesus. Thallus in 52 AD, and I will mess up these names. You can correct me later, but I just want you to know. (laughs) I will mess them up. Thallus mentions the darkness which occurred at the Lord's crucifixion. And when he tried to argue that the abnormal darkness at the crucifixion was purely natural and uh, a natural phenomenon and coincidence, but he did not deny that that happened. Merabar Serapion. After 70, sometime after 73 A.D., 
He wrote a letter to his son from prison, pleading for his son to be wise by illustrating the folly of persecuting such wise men as Socrates, Pythagoras, and Christ. So he says in his letter to his son, what advantage did the Athenians gain from putting Socrates to death? What advantage did the men of Samos gain from burning Pythagoras? What advantage did the Jews gain from executing their wise king? But Socrates did not die for good. He lived on in the teaching of Plato. Pythagoras did not die for good. He lived on in the statue of Hera. Nor did the wise king die for good. He lived on in the teaching which he had, <clears throat> which he had given. And so the point of it, is that by sometime after 73 AD, by the time that Serapion was writing to his son, Jesus had already gained fame and stature equal with that of men like Socrates and Pythagoras. Jesus was a real person of history. Third, Cornelius Tacitus. You may have heard of Heard of him, some, some of these names. Known as the greatest historian of Rome in 54 to 68 AD while writing... Uh, in the, during the reign of Nero, he told how the Christians were made scapegoats for the great fire of 64 AD. It had been rumored that Nero himself started the fire in order to gain glory by rebuilding the city. And Tacitus says, consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. So Tacitus, being there in that time, was certainly in a good position to learn the history of Christianity, being, especially as being governor uh, of Asia in 112 AD, not long after the events took place. See Plinius the Younger. He was governor of Bithynia. He often wrote to Emperor Trajan asking his imperial advice on how best to deal with the sect of the Christians, which, according to him, were troubling his province. One letter around 112 AD reveals information he extracted from some Christians by torture. You ready for this information? They were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light, and when they sang an anthem to Christ as God and bound themselves by solemn oath not to commit any wicked deed, after which it was their custom to separate and then meet again to partake of food, but food of an ordinary and innocent kind. Those bad Christians, right? Look at all those things they were doing. Some think it's worthy of torture. Suetonius in 120 A.D., as the Jews were making constant disturbances at the instigation of Christus, he expelled them from Rome. So many Jews had become Christians at Rome that Claudius probably equated the Jews with Christians and thus expelled them from the city of Rome by an imperial decree. Luke, by the way, records the same event much earlier in Acts chapter 18, 1 and 2. He says, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Hmm. History books coincide with scripture. So here we have our five witnesses from pagan sources that tells us of a real historical Jesus. Men of the stature of Tacitus and Pliny and Suetonius make the historicity of Jesus an undeniable fact. Jesus was a real person of history. And we're going to say that over and over again this morning. So we move on. And I know we're going quick. We have a lot to get through, so I invite you to buckle your seatbelts. Uh, we'll get through the next two hours, okay? All right. 
you think I'm joking. I am. I just got the look. Um, All right. Two early Jewish sources that give proof, further proof, that certainly there was a a real uh, person named Jesus. Number one, the Talmud from 78, written from 70 AD to 200 AD, there are approximately 80 hostile references to Christ, but they do help establish the existence of Jesus. According to these writings, Jesus of Nazareth was a transgressor in Israel who practiced magic, scorned the words of the wise, led the people astray, and said he had not come to destroy the law, but to add to it. Remember Matthew 5:17. What does that say? Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So they twisted it a little bit, but it still is a reference to Jesus being a real person in history. Josephus, after 70 AD, uh, referenced several things. He spoke of Jesus as the so-called Christ. Arrest, uh, he spoke of the arrest and trial of James and speaks of him as the brother of Jesus. He says that Jesus is a doer of wonderful deeds, a man, if indeed he can be called a man. He was a founder of the tribe called Christians, and uh, he speaks twice of Christ. So I'll read an excerpt from Josephus. And there arose about this time Jesus, a wise man, if indeed we should call him a man. For he was a doer of marvelous deeds, a teacher of men who received the truth with pleasure. He won over many Jews and also many Greeks. This man was the Messiah, and when Pilate had condemned him to the cross at the instigation of our own leaders, those who had loved him from the first did not cease, for he appeared to them on the third day alive again, as the holy prophets had predicted, and said many other wonderful things about him. And even now the race of Christians, so named after him, has not yet died out. And so that kind of reminds me of an event in Acts chapter 5. You might remember where Gamaliel speaks to the Sanhedrin concerning what to do with the apostles. He says, Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago Thaddeus appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and it came to nothing. After him, Judas, Judas, the Galilean, appeared in the days of the census, and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone, let them go. For if their purpose or activity is is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. And remember, uh, Josephus had said it had not yet died out. So all of these historical writers share the same thing. No matter what their opinion of Jesus, they take for granted his existence. They simply did not deny the existence of Jesus because Jesus is a real person of history. And so we haven't even talked about the New Testament writers yet. We have a lot of proof outside of the New Testament, outside of the Bible, But let's take a look uh, at a few things about about the New Testament. The New Testament alone would be totally adequate to prove that Jesus was a real person of history. Now, we won't go too in-depth with that because of time, but whatever reasons would be total... I'm sorry, whatever reasons may be given for receiving the testimony of Josephus or Tacitus or of any other writer as reliable history must be equally applied to the New Testament writers. So if we're going to believe Josephus and all of these other historians, 
then we have to give the New Testament the same consideration. All of the New Testament writers were contemporaries of Jesus. And number three, four eyewitnesses, four were eyewitnesses, three accompanied Jesus throughout his ministry, and all of their writings are in remarkable agreement and continue to stand the test of genuineness and historicity. If the New Testament documents were the, were, were the only single source from antiquity which presented to us the life of Christ, it would be more than sufficient, more than sufficient proof of his historical reality. And we'll see more about that in a few minutes. So what do we do with all this information? I know I've thrown a lot at you in, in such a few minutes, but what do we do with it? Well, we have to talk about <clears throat> a little bit about the objective nature of historical Christianity versus religious subjectivism. So we cannot prove that Jesus was resurrected from the dead or prove anything else happened in the first century because of some emotion that I have within me. That doesn't change history, does it not? I mean, I want to tell you that I went to Cracker Barrel and had the biggest, best breakfast this morning. But my wife would say, no, you didn't. You ate a bowl of cereal and drank some coffee at the kitchen table. And so, but I feel like I did. That was such a good bowl of cereal, it felt like Cracker Barrel. It doesn't make any sense, does it? No, certainly it doesn't. That's probably a bad example, too. But this is what you got to work with, so there you go. Um, so, we can't change anything based on how we feel. We just can't. Now, certain events that happen and things that, that went on throughout time makes me feel good, right? We have great feelings because of the things that happen. And so subjectivism's, uh, that should say subjectivism's danger can make a person believe something is true when in fact, <clears throat> when in fact it isn't. But again, you know, certainly we, uh, we have emotion. God made that uh, uh, part of us. He gave us feelings for a reason. And just like anything else, we use those, uh, we use those properly. And uh, I'm here to tell you that uh, just me personally, you might look at this and think, oh, that's, uh, that's too much history. <laughs> I look at math and think that's too much math. I don't want to know that. I don't want to see that, but I have to do it. But uh, anyway, this actually does bring up a lot of emotion for me. I'm excited about this. It helps build my faith, and that's what, uh, that's what uh, makes me really excited and encouraged and uh, it makes me feel uh, a lot of joy, a lot of deep personal joy when we, as we go through this. So, what does God say about subjectivism? God's word is to be the standard. In Numbers 15, 37 through 40, the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, Throughout the generations to come, you are to make tassels on the corners of your garments with a blue cord on each tassel. You will have these tassels to look at, so you will remember all the commands of the Lord that you may obey them and not prostitute yourselves by chasing after the lusts of your own hearts and eyes. Then you will remember to obey all my commands and will be consecrated to your God. God even considers man's forgetfulness, right? What's another way he considers man's forgetfulness? Well, we just did a few minutes ago. What a lot of our tables have inscribed on them. Do this in remembrance of me. And so we do that every week, and God gives us that. 
he accounts for that. He certainly loves us and considers all of these things. And so God knows that we, we will forget. He knows man. He created us. He knows us the best. And second, man's heart is not a source of reliable facts. Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-six says, The man that trusts in his heart is a fool. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things. It is exceedingly corrupt. Who can know it? And feelings are not to determine what is truth. Proverbs 14, 12 and 16, 25 both say, There is a way that appears to be right, but in the end it leads to death. So I think if that's in there twice, probably pretty important, right? And man's way is not in himself. Jeremiah 10, 23 says, O Jehovah, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not man that walks to direct his steps. So Jeremiah knew this because God had revealed it to him. So then the Bible is very clear. There's a danger in subjectivism. It can lead people to think things are true when they are not. It can lead people to accept false religion when they should not. And the Bible position is you're not to follow after what what you feel because subjectivism is no proof that Christianity was true. So then, brings us back, what is the the opposite of subjectivism? Objectivism. Christianity is a historical religion. It is grounded upon events that took place in history. So, how do we know that these events took place? That there was a man named Jesus? That Jesus fed 5,000? That Jesus was raised from, or that Jesus raised the dead? And that Jesus was raised from the dead. How do we know anything that happened in the past? How do we know that George Washington was our first president? It's okay. You can say it. We have eyewitnesses. And people wrote it down. That's how we have that. Only one way for people to know what happened in the past is when they weren't there to observe it. Historical testimony. And thankfully, the New Testament is a history book. An example of this historical context is in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, written to most excellent Theophilus, who was an official in the Roman government. He had access to police files, records, and would be able to check things out to know whether or not they were true. Luke says that his material was carefully researched, secured from eyewitnesses, accurate, and presented in order of their occurrence. Then he states the reason, that thou might know the certainty concerning the things you were instructed. Ooh, gives confidence, gives understanding. John says something similar in John chapter 19, verse 35. The man who saw it is given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. He says, what I am writing is what I saw. I was a participant in what I saw. I know it is true, and I'm writing that you might believe it too. So, therefore, if the claims of the apostles were true and the claims of Jesus were true, then isn't it true that he can forgive you? I hope so. I want that forgiveness. How about you? Is it true that he can save your soul? Yes. And since he was raised from the dead, he can raise me from the dead. And with certainty, we can say yes, because we have that proof.
You like my little artwork there? We all get the doubties, right? Doubt if I will, doubt if I won't. I don't know if that's a real word. A teacher can correct me. That's fine. But we all get the doubties. So if I'm basing, there's some words for you. If I am basing my eternity on Jesus, then I need to consider the integrity of the New Testament. But if I'm honest with myself and I'm honest with you, I have those times of doubts. Is it really true? Did he really do that? Could he really have fed 5,000 people with such a little amount of food? Did he really walk on the water? Or was that some kind of trick? So I have doubts that arise from time to time. And we have songs that, that we sing about that, don't we? And again, if we're all honest with ourselves, we have those times of doubts. But thankfully, we have the scripture that helps us, to helps us battle that. And as we fill ourselves, as we feed our soul, just like we feed ourselves food, just like we feed our vehicles gasoline, our bodies need, our soul needs scripture. Our soul needs the word of God and needs the understanding and uh, confidence. So, considering all things, all of the writings, and this is where it gets good, I promise. Okay, this is what you've waited for. Therefore, uh, considering all of the writings, we do not have any of the originals. <sighs> that seems like a letdown, right? Not so fast. We, but we do not have any of the original writings of any of the history books that we spoke about, nor of the Bible that you hold in your hand right now. We do not have any original copy, or yes, any original signed, penned by the writers either of the New Testament or other classical writings of that time. So what we have are manuscripts. Manuscripts are copies of the originals. They are image reproductions, not simply word for word. It's not translated, but letter for letter. They are written down and copied as they didn't have the old uh, uh, Xerox copy machine sitting nearby back in those days. They had folks that would do that for them. And so considering all of these things, We're going to put everything in the same boat. It's only fair that the New Testament receive at least the same consideration as other writings from that same time period. And here we go. Earliest known copy, Caesar's Gaelic Wars, 58 to 50 B.C. There are nine or ten good manuscripts in existence, and the oldest manuscript is 800 years after the original. And we're going to speed up. The Roman history of Livy, 59 to 17 A.D., 35 of 147 manuscripts exist. And the oldest manuscript we have is 300 years after the original. The histories of Tacitus, 110 to 115 A.D., 14 books survived from two manuscripts. Oldest manuscript is 800 years after the original. Pay attention to the years after the original. Uh, Tacitus, 100 A.D., 10 manuscripts exist in full, two in part. Oldest manuscript is 900 to 1,000 years after the original. History of Herodotus, 480 to 425 B.C., eight manuscripts exist. The oldest manuscript is 1,300 years after the original. And you got that twice. (laughs) How about that? Oh, there's another one that was 13 years after the original, too. I got it in my notes. You can come read them if you want. You trust me. So manuscript evidence for the New Testament is far greater than that of classical histories. 
There are presently in existence about 5,000 copies of the Greek New Testament in whole or in part. So how does the New Testament compare? This is what we need to pay attention to. Number one, in 350 AD, I'm not going to pronounce all of those. You can see them. The entire Bible, many other books, uh, contains the entire Bible and many other books. The oldest manuscript is only 250 years after the original. Number two, copied around 350 AD is only 250 years after the the original. Uh, The third codex, 5th century AD, oldest manuscript is only 350 years after the original. Number four, 5th century AD, uh, 350 to 400 years after the original, and the fifth codex, only 400 years after the original. Besides these ancient manuscripts of the Bible, there are some very important fragments of papyrus codices of the Bible which have been dated <clears throat> from around 130 to 250 A.D. I'd like to show those to you now. Chester Beatty, Biblical Papyri, contains portions of 11 uh, papyrus codices of the Bible. Three of these contain most of the New Testament writings. One fragment containing the Gospels and Acts is dated between 250 or 200 and 250 AD. The second one contains the fourth chapter, 14 chapters of John. Portions of last seven chapters dated around 200 AD. And here we go. Are you ready? Ryland's fragment. This fragment contains John 19, 31 through 33, and verses 37 and following. It has been dated around 130 A.D. It shows that John, which was written between 90 and 100 A.D., was circulating in Egypt only 40 years, 40 years after it was written. To date, this is the earliest existing fragment of the New Testament. Everything else of that time, Everything else is hundreds of years, even some of these hundreds of years. Yet that fragment, 40 years, it is by far superior, superior in proving that what it says uh, was indeed what was written and penned by the original writers. And so that right there is exciting to me. That's what gets me up in the morning. It's what gets me going through the day. What gets me here. Every time that we're open is because of that. We can have confidence. We can rest assured that what we are reading in our New Testament is an authentic representation of what was originally written. Now, what do we do with that information? After all this, you might not believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but... When we can show you that the New Testament is historically reliable, then whether you believe Jesus is the Son of God or not, whether you believe the Bible is the Word of God or not, one thing is for sure. If it is a history book, when it says Jesus made certain claims, then he made those claims. When it says Jesus did certain deeds, then he did those deeds. Did he really? Walk on the water? Yes. Did he really raise from the dead? Yes. If those deeds are sufficient to confirm his claims, then reason, ooh, that's a good word, reason. God tells Isaiah, come, let us reason together. Does he not? In Isaiah chapter 1, God wants us to think, wants us to understand and reason these things out. So reason has to sit in judgment on the evidence and draw a conclusion in regard to just 
who Jesus was and what the New Testament really is. And for those of us who believe our faith in God is built up, we obtain more and more confidence. We are able to fend off the devil when he throws doubt in our face, having knowledge that what we are reading is indeed 100% God's word. How wonderful is God? How wonderful is God for freely giving faith and wisdom and giving us these things, preserving these things over all this time? Some 2,000 years later, we have that much proof. How wonderful is our God, right? For giving us that. So let's commit to being faithful and to knowing this precious, historical, accurate word of God that we can put our confidence, hope, and trust in.